Welcome to the Holy Donors Podcast. Join Andrew, Matt, Ren, and me, Thaddeus, as every week we bring you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. So, Andrew, you ready to get started? Can't wait. Excellence must be pursued, it must be wooed with all of one's might and every bit of effort that we have. And each day there's a new encounter, each week there's a new challenge. From all of the display and all of the noise and all of the glamour and all of the color and all of the excitement and all of the rings and all of the money, these are the things that really linger only in the memory. But the spirit, the will to excel, the will to win, these are the things that endure. Welcome back to episode four of the Vince Lombardi season. That was an excellent piece that we brought in again. Thanks for sharing that, Andrew. Yeah, I mean, it really speaks to Lombardi's emphasis, not just on the winning, but on the development of character and the development of will, which, again, we'll talk about in this episode. But I think that's what is lost in a lot of the talk about Lombardi. You know, he's famous for this quote, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. And it really, you brought, you made this point in episode three, I think winning the game, right? The finite game of football was incredibly important to him. He hated losing, but in the infinite game of life, he wanted to develop men of character and he poured everything. I mean, literally everything he had into that. And that I think is his legacy that we'll talk about in this episode. Very good. So last episode, we discussed really his time at Green Bay yeah. from when he came in, uh, what he did, you know, to kind of get over this this uh, large mountain that he had to climb in order to, to bring in a winning team, uh, how he won the coach of the year, all the way to Super Bowl championships. But then you left us at the point of, of his retirement, and we were trying to figure out why would he retire when he's at the peak? Yeah, so... Lombardi and the Packers won five national championships, three before the Super Bowl and then two Super Bowls. So they were definitely a dynasty. So Lombardi shocked everybody when he retired at the end of that 1967 season. Now, one thing to make a point of is that Lombardi was both head coach and general manager of the Packers. So he retired as the head coach, but he stayed on as the general manager. And so he still was involved with the team, but he wasn't coaching. Now, yes, the question, why did he retire? There are a number of reasons. One, the stress and the anxiety that he felt in his body and his soul every year trying to maintain that time at the top was just overwhelming for him. I think he felt like he needed to stop for his own uh, benefit. And then he was also experiencing a lot more physical pain. So he was having constant stomach aches, constant headaches, he was fatigued more at the at in that season and so he was it was taking a toll on him now there's also a point that a lot of people make that that 1967 season they probably should not have won the super bowl they had lost some players paul hornig who had been kind of the superstar had a was had injuries didn't really play actually a lot of that last season a lot of their players had moved on and so they were kind of primed to 
to take a step backwards. And so there are people that say, well, he just retired so that he didn't have to have a losing season, which is what he thought. Now, you know, I don't know, you know, what, how much of that factored into the equation, but it really was, he just felt like every year maintaining that time at the top was just exhausting and physically taking a toll. So after he retired, he made some investments uh, he got involved with a couple of businesses. Nothing really went anywhere, but he invested $6,000 in a company called Public Facilities Associates. He was approached um, by the founder of that, and they make apartment complexes for the elderly and poor, and they sold them back to local public housing authorities. So he felt a real attachment to this mission because he really did care for the poor and the elderly and those uh, in need. But he also, uh, Lombardi was one of those guys that, he had chased power and control his entire career and had never really had the money that came with that. The money had always eluded him, and he felt this probably most acutely when he was dealing with the NFL owners. He knew that as the head coach, as his general manager, he was never an owner. And part of that was they always had more money and ownership, and that stung him. He could never have control and complete power over them because he didn't have the money. So he made some investments like that. Um, He stayed on as the general manager. He kind of became a national celebrity. He already was at this time. He was, you know, the probably the most recognized coach in America. He had that voice. You know, they had the, the Green Bay Packers were a dynasty at this point. And, I mean, he was being talked about as being Nixon's VP running mate uh, in 1968. He was friends with, with the Kennedys, um, with Robert Kennedy. Hubert Humphrey was considering him as his running mate on the Democratic t- ticket. So he was, he was giving speeches all over. He kind of perfected the speech, which I'll give you the bullet points on in a minute. He gave the speech hundreds of times to management groups, to insurance brokers, to bankers, and it was he was just a he was famous. I mean, he was on the cover of magazines. He did not go anywhere that people didn't recognize him. In fact, uh, in 1958, he kind of uh, developed a, a love of a new restaurant, Alex's Crown, which was a little outside of Green Bay, and he would go there weekly, couple multiple times a week. And he had this rule where everybody that was there, the bartender, the busboy, the host, the the waiter, uh, the wine person, everybody there would get a $10 tip. But anytime that he was interrupted or asked for an autograph during his meal, he would take a dollar away from that $10 tip to everybody. Hmm. And so there was one time that a waitress showed up and she was brand new and she walked over and got a tip uh, or got asked for an autograph. And he said, oh, yeah, absolutely. And he signed it. And at the end of the meal, he went and he got 81s from the um, from the register so that he could give everybody an eighty an eight dollar tip because that was an interruption and an autograph. Uh, <laughs> so he was very it was still a stickler to the rules, uh, still wanted that discipline, but uh, he was uh, you know famous at that. That's a crazy story to tell. I mean, it may be something that we all should copy whenever we go to restaurants. Just to, <laughs> yeah, granted, right. none of us are famous, so yeah, really. so they're not going to ask any of us for our autographs. So he's retired from football. He was considered for running mates there, um, but we're missing a big part. You know, Mar- yeah. uh, Marie, she was she's battled depression and whatnot. How's their marriage at this point in time? How's their family? Okay, so that's a good question because he's a general manager for two years, and he starts really questioning whether he made the right decision. He he confided to a priest friend of his that maybe he let his concerns for his health 
kind of overcome his desire for coaching and he retired just a little too early. So he wanted to get back in the game. He wanted to uh, own, he still wanted to have that ownership of a football team and Marie's health continued to decline. As the coach's wife, she was a celebrity in Green Bay as well. As the general manager's wife, she had kind of lost a lot, some of that opportunity to be part of high society the high society of green Bay, which was a far cry from the high society of New York that she really craved. And so for a lot of these reasons, Lombardi started uh, entertaining the idea of coaching again. Mm. So in 1969, he agrees to go to Washington DC to be the head coach, the general manager, and he got 12 and a half percent equity within the Redskins ownership. So in 1969, he does that. So uh, some of those sort of selfish reasons, right? He wants to coach again. He wants to be an owner. Um, But I think also he wants to help Marie. And he knows that Marie is not happy in Green Bay anymore. She really wasn't ever happy, but really not happy now. So Mm. moving back over to the East Coast gets her closer to family, gets her back into kind of, you know, opportunity for society. So he does a year. It's uh, he kind of, you know, comes back in, implements everything that he did with the Packers there's a noticeable sort of lack of enthusiasm, a little bit less than he was with the Packers. Now he's older now, um, but he ends up turning the Redskins around that first season. They have the same record that the Packers did in their first season, seven, five, and two. And he's kind of, you know, uh, still recognized as the great coach Lombardi. But after that season is when he gets sick. He has a kidney infection. He fails his insurance physical because of his heart. They're concerned about cancer. And Marie kind of takes this time to write a note to Vincent, um, kind of putting it all out there. So I'll read a couple of excerpts from this, and you can kind of see what life is like in the Lombardi family. Dear son, the time has come to write this to clear the air and to tell it like it is. Believe me, if anything happens to him, meaning Vince, I will fold up my tent and go with him because there is no way I could live without him. I suddenly realized what a price I had paid for fame and fortune. You've been a good son, And for that, I'm grateful. But there has been one sorrow in my life, and that is that you and your father were always so far apart. The one thing you didn't understand is he is a very shy and lonely man, believe it or not. He is a very great, generous, wonderful man, and his whole life has been giving and doing things for you, me, and Sue. I have been trying forever, it seems, to bring you two together, because again, believe it or not, he really needs you. Oh, how he needs you. This letter has rambled on, but that's my state of mind. I repeat, Please keep this down to a roar. I have written this because I think you should know so that you will understand a lot of things. So now I'll end this and just ask you to pray. Phone or write if you get time. All my love, mom. Mm -hmm. So I think Marie is starting to recognize there's this rift. Time is coming to an end for Vince. And can she reconcile her son and him? So that's kind of happening. After the season, Lombardi takes it easy. He plays some golf. He keeps speaking. He's pretty rich now. Um, That uh, deal that he made with the public facilities sells for $1.7 million, like I said. So he's kind of earned a little bit of time to take it easy. But his health continues to decline. And in June of 1970, he's admitted to the hospital. He had surgery to remove two feet of colon because it had an aggressive malignant tumor. He went back for a second surgery July 27th, a month later, but they realized that the cancer had spread and there was nothing left to do. Finally, They admitted to the public that the coach was dying. At that time, he received thousands of letters and hundreds of visitors to the hospital. On September 3rd, 1970, Vince Lombardi died. So this was uh, maybe his family saw this coming because they knew his 
the state he was in. Yeah. But I've got to imagine this was a shock to the NFL, yeah, players around the the country, really the whole entire American society. Correct. Yeah. Nobody thought that the great Vince Lombardi could ever die, I think is really what it came to and couldn't be, be beat by anything, much less cancer. But he was, and uh, he died in 1970. Uh, his funeral was at St. Patrick's Cathedral and literally every... St. Patrick's in New York City? Yeah. Literally every Packer player, every Redskin player, teammates from the Giants, from his Fordham days, from his time at St. Cecilia, friends and family from Brooklyn came. There were thousands of mourners that lined the, lined the streets. Uh, and he was buried at Mount Olivet Cemetery in Middletown Township, New Jersey, not far from the Lombardi's old home in Fairhaven. So this is the time that I think we can kind of go back and talk about some of the impact that Lombardi had and what some of these, you know, iconic quotes from Vince Lombardi meant. So Lombardi was a man of contradiction. He loved his players. In fact, he was one of the first head coaches to actually talk about his love that he had for his players and the love that he desired his players to have for their teammates. But in spite of that, he relied on anger and hate to motivate them a lot of times. He wanted his players to hate losing. He mm. wanted his players mm. to hate the other team enough that they would do everything within their power to win. He had this quote, and it says, anybody can love something that's beautiful or smart or agile. You'll never know love until you can learn to love something that isn't beautiful or isn't bright or isn't glamorous. Can you accept somebody for their inabilities? So he's a very much a man of contradiction. This sort of theology of his, you know, where he blends this this Jesuit and this Catholic faith with football is recognized by the diocesan Herald Citizen in Green Bay as practical theology. What better practical theology can there be other than Lombardi's theology of team love? Mm. Misplaced vocation, right? He he's devoted to his work, right? But he's not he's not focused on he's not giving himself to his vocation of marriage the way that he's really supposed to. Yeah, and um, you know, a lot of times he But he's a man of his times. We have to we have to factor that in too. That's true. Yeah. I mean husbands didn't even go to the uh, to the hospitals when their wives were having babies sometimes, right? right? right. You know, there was uh definitely a culture. And I think it, you know, kind of going back to Early on, I made the comment a couple of episodes ago when Marie was struggling with alcohol and she went to a couple of AA meetings. He didn't go and support her. He said, this is a weakness. You need to get over it, Marie. Mm-hmm. So he, I think he very much felt like he had done the, the sort of the preparation, right? He had guided his kids. He'd give them the tools to figure it out. And then when push came to shove, they needed to figure it out on their own and they didn't need him around. There was a, I was talking about this with you off the air, Matt, but there were a lot of players that said he was the most worthless person on the field on, on game days because during the week he would do everything. He would run them. He would push them so hard. He would teach them everything they had. And then by the time game day came around, he all he did on the field was yell and uh, try to motivate them, but he wasn't really doing any coaching at that point. They had done, he had taught them everything they needed during the week. So it's possible that's kind of how he viewed his family as well. I did everything for you that I needed to, and now you're on your own. You know, I don't know. That's a that's a tough contradiction to come uh, around to, but that was just how he was. You know, another contradiction I think came at the end of his life. He had 
cancer. It was inoperable. There was nothing he could do about it. But he lived a life of do everything you can to win. Yeah. And ultimately, the end of his life hit a point where there was nothing he could do to yeah. win. Yeah. And I think that, you know, not that he gave up, but certainly he recognized that uh, he fought the good fight and he was tired. I mean, those that last year leading up to his death, he went and saw his mother and his mother said, you look tired. And he said, I'm dying, Ma. And she said, well, I'm dying. What's the problem? <laughs> uh, you know, and we're all dying. And it was kind of like, I think he was just tired. Yeah. Um, he had put everything he had into life for so long. He felt like he had reached the top and now he was done. Yeah. Do we have any sense of his, uh, his interior life in those last months, weeks? Did he... He was a daily mass communicator right. his whole life. He never missed mass. In fact, a lot of times when he was, um, when it was the, the things were the busiest, uh, he had priests that would have private masses for him where it would just be him and the priest. Um, he was an altar server, mm-hmm. um, even long into his, uh, his advanced life. Yeah. So he, like I said, he carried that rosary in his pocket from the time that he was in high school. He would pray the rosary on, during Lent, he had a tape that he would put in that was the rosary that he would listen to, mm-hmm. um, and they would pray. So and know, any any kind of reconciliation or growing closer with with Marie in the final no, days and weeks and months of his life? No, but it's interesting you, you kind of bring, you phrase it in that way, right? Reconciliation with Marie. Uh, he and Marie had a very contentious relationship their whole life. In fact, um, there was a guy, uh, Mr. Hines, and he wrote and helped write an autobiography, ghost wrote an autobiography in the 60s, and they were trying to come up with names for the book. And they said, what are some of the things that he says all the time? And he says, well, why don't we just name it Shut Up, Marie? Because he's yelling that all the time. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, they had this very, like, contentious relationship, but Marie was the only person that would also stand up stand up back to him and kind of give it back to him. When she did, he would always back down. So they had this, that was the way the relationship was. And let me read this from uh, kind of some comments at the very end of her life. So this is a line from When Pride Still Matter by David Marinus. Winning is not a sometimes thing. It is an all-time thing, Vince Lombardi often said, and his wife believed it. Marie believed almost all of his maxims, at least as much as he did. Believing in the coach was a matter of survival for her, even now that she was long dead. This explains why she was following his advice here in the solitude of her Oceanside condominium and practicing a speech until she got it right. He wrote that before she went and gave a speech at the NFL Hall of Fame for one of the players. She didn't think that she would survive uh, after Vince died. He was everything to her, mm-hmm. and he she loved him. Um, you heard some of that kind of commentary in her letter to Vincent, her son, uh, you know, sticking up for him. Uh, kind of you know defending him, and ultimately she carried on. And she uh, somebody asked her if she ever asked thought of remarrying, and she said only if she could find a man who wouldn't mind staying up until two in the morning listening to, to her talk about Lombardi. <laughs> so that is a great comment. I mean, that says so much. It's it was a contentious relationship, but I don't know that it needed a reconciliation at the end. You know, yeah. it was just. That was how the relationship was. Now, with the kids, I think Susan kind of felt a little bit more understanding for him. Vincent, I think, really struggled um, and admitted that many times later in life. 
Um, I think one more contradiction that I'll point out is Lombardi was recognized as a man of great passion, and that came out in a lot of anger, right? And so if you hear any of the you know comments of him yelling on the sidelines, he's yelling, what the hell are you doing? You know, And uh, he would publicly berate some of the players. But he had this way of reconciling with the players that was very subtle, but was very meaningful. A lot of times he would be yelling at a player and he'd tell them, you know, they're, they're lousy and he's going to cut them from the team and he's yelling at him at practice. And then afterwards, you know, they're sitting at their locker after practice and he walks by and he would just put a hand on his, sh- on her, on the player's shoulder. And he would say, good work out there today. Mm-hmm. And it was just these very kind of small moments that you could tell that he at, at the heart of what he was doing in all of his relationships was he was pushing everybody to strive for perfection. And to go beyond what they thought they were capable of. Exactly. I see something in you that maybe you don't see, but I see it, and I'm going to push you until that comes out in a way that you will be proud uh, for the rest of your life. I mean, that's very Christ-like in a way, right? That's what our faith is supposed to do, is to push us to be more than we think that we're capable of. Grace is supposed to help us do that. Now, we're all flawed vessels, right? We're all flawed imitators of the great teacher, but there is something deeply Christian in that, I think. So the probably the most famous quote for him was, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. So listen to this clip from Vince saying it, and then kind of the reflection from one of the reporters who followed him his entire career. Winning isn't everything, but it's the only thing. In our business, there is no second place, either your first or your last. He told me one day, I wish the hell I'd never said that. I said, well, don't you believe it? He said, what I believe is, if you go out on a football field on Sunday or any other endeavor in life, and you leave every fiber of what you have on that field when it finally, the game finally ends, then you've won. And to me, that tells a lot more than the final score. And I never made that clear. So I think that's a, a, a the kind of the final point of contradiction is was Vince Lombardi really as committed to this winning isn't everything it's the only thing as it's stated in that moment. I don't know. What do you guys think? I think as he matures in his life and through the story you just shared Andrew, I think a lot of what's coming out is a man who isn't pushing his players for perfection to win the game. It's not about the scoreboard. It's about perfection in the human form. Mm -hmm. Are you getting up every day doing what you're supposed to be doing every single day Mm -hmm. to be the best version that you possibly can be? Mm -hmm. So that's one side of it. And then I think the other side is, okay, you think you're doing and being the best person you can possibly be, but I know you can do more, and I'm going to push you to do the more. And I think to him, when you have a young man uh, or a professional football player that, that hits both of those, those uh, criteria, you've won. Whether or not the scoreboard at the end of the game provides that or not, mm-hmm. at that, that's what he's saying. Winning is everything. That is what's everything yeah. in his view. Yeah, I think those are really good insights and, and analyses, Matt. I'm curious, Andrew, you talked a little bit about Paul Hornig mm-hmm. and the golden boy, and he was seen as the wild child. And did Lombardi, obviously he recognized this great running back that he had. 
But did Lombardi have some expectations of Horning that he he wanted him to to grow up? He wanted him to live, you know, a moral life. I don't think he did. Okay, I think that so that that wasn't in the calculation of Lombardi yeah. in in excellence. It was excellence as a football player. I think that he knew at the heart of Paul Hornig that the way so just to kind of put it out there Paul Hornig was a party boy he was called the golden boy he came out of I think USC and was kind of a national celebrity as you know going coming into the NFL um, struggled under Scooter McLean and then really you know excelled under Lombardi he had a lot of women in his life he would party all the time I don't think Vince Lombardi had any problem with drinking and alcohol uh, right, you know right. they they partied uh, he did uh, all into his life and so, and I think he saw all the other indiscretions as, you know, that's fine. Paul can do that because I know who Paul is as a person and what he's striving for in his life. And I'm okay with that. So I don't know. Uh, that was an interesting relationship because it, it was kind of almost like he knew that he was never going to go down that road personally. And so he almost, in a, in a way, might have lived vicariously through Paul Hornig. I don't know. Mm. I don't know. It's hard to say about that. Matt, you made a point about that I can push you as the coach. I think that Vince Lombardi took so much ownership and so much pride in his players and how they lived and how they played on the field that he suffered for his players, if that can make sense. He felt like, if I am not pushing you to be your best, then I am failing you. Not even that you're failing, it's that I am failing you. And I think that put so much stress and pressure on him over his career. That was probably a big reason his retirement. He just couldn't continue to do that. But I think that ultimately, you know, that that stress of him caring so much for his players sort of drove him to neglect his family, drove him to have personal health problems, and gave him that sort of sense of suffering and pain in his life that he knew he had to have in order for him to live a Christian life. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Holy Donors, brought to you by Petrus Development in cooperation with Red Sea Catholic Radio and Back Row Media. Theme music by Tommy Kibb, Third Top Productions, graphics by 86 Creative. If you like us, leave us a review, share us with your friends, and check us out at holydonors.com and on Instagram, at holydonors. Holy Donors, bringing you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. I just want to know who Lince Lombardi is. <laughs> Lince Lombardi. Sounds <laughs> like, like a character. <laughs> a friend of Charles Chickens. <laughs>